0: Zero podcast
1: fresh fighting intensifying in eastern ukraine and more attacks inside russian territory as speculation grows about Kyiv's counter-offensive is the war in ukraine entering a critical stage or just another phase with no end in sight i'm mohammed jamjum and you're listening to the inside story podcast where we dissect analyze and help define major global stories All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. In Moscow, we're joined by Pavel Felgenhauer, a defense and military analyst. In Athens is Despina Afentouli, executive director at the Institute of International Relations, specializing in foreign policy and European affairs. And in Bath, in the UK, is Patrick Bury, a defense and security analyst at the University of Bath and a former British Army officer. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Patrick, let me start with you today. Is what we're witnessing now the start of the Ukrainian counteroffensive? Is that what we're seeing?
2: I think so, yes. Uh, It's the next phase. The first phase was what we call the shaping phase, where Ukraine was trying to set the conditions as best as possible uh, to facilitate the next phase. Uh, and this phase is basically reconnaissance and force probing. They're using their ground forces, especially in the southeast, uh, in the division between the Zaporizhia and Donetsk oblasts. They're attacking um, around a town called Nova, Novo Donetsk, uh, and they've had some success there already. Some reports, credible reports, suggest five to six kilometers they've advanced since yesterday. Um, and so I think that's where we are. They're not committing all our forces. They're attacking actually in a number of different places, some to the north of Bakhmut as well. Um, and they're basically, because they are a smaller force, they're trying to find a weak spot, uh, probe, 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 draw Russian forces away. Uh, and then they would get their heavier forces and try and exploit any breakthrough that they can make.
1: Patrick, I also want to ask you about what we're seeing in terms of far-right Russians allied to Kyiv that have been launching these cross-border attacks into Russia, and also the drone attacks that have been hitting cities like Moscow. Do you expect that that's going to continue?
2: Uh, well, the, the Belgorod raids, raids in, in that area are essentially that. They're raids by the two, uh, the Volunteer Corps and the, the Foreign Legion. Uh, the Volunteer Corps much less uh, seems controlled than the uh, the Legion, which is sort of fighting hand in hand with the Ukrainians. Um, but yet, they're, they're there. The design, is, of course, is to embarrass the Putin regime, to create uh, uncertainty in the border area, and also to force russia to send more troops there to draw drag them away from other areas where the offensive is going to be trying to break through so that's what's going on there uh, i would expect that to continue um we've seen it basically continuing now for a few days they'll have those forces will have to retreat and refit after a while but their 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 job at the moment is to create as much havoc as they can um and in terms of the drone attack on uh, Moscow, I think that was part, basically, tit for tat for the uh, heavy wave of attacks that Kiev had experienced. And then the Ukrainian general had said, you can expect us to hit back. Uh, and the next morning, you know, there was between eight and probably more like 30 drones flying into southwest Moscow. Um, a number of them were shot down, but some of them weren't. Uh, and I think the target there was really at the, the elites, the Russian elites who live in that area, um, as opposed to the ordinary Russian people the Ukrainians trying to trying to bring the war home to especially those elites and also maybe sow some sh- 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 sow some divisions. Sorry, Pavel. Let me get your view on this. So when it comes to
1: uh, drone strikes that have hit Moscow, when it comes to far right Russians allied to Kiev that have been launching attacks across the border, uh, first of all, how does that change things? And and you heard uh, you heard Patrick there say that some of this is meant to embarrass uh, President Putin. Is it an embarrassment for him?
0: Oh, yes, it is an embarrassment that caused uh, quite a stir in public opinion in Moscow, uh, that uh, Moscow is also vulnerable uh, to Ukrainian attack, though, of course, uh, these were well rather small drones and no one got really seriously injured and uh, it was minor damage it was a kind of part of a psychological i would say warfare and more or less the same with the uh, trans-border raids by these auxiliary units uh, which are also creating problems though not really uh, grabbing or holding any kind of territory on the russian side uh, but that's not their objective again the, they would most likely ukrainians hope that uh, they could draw some russian reserves from the main battlefield that's going to, in the south where the uh, now in the summer campaign everything's going to be decided i believe the outcome of the whole conflict is going to be decided this summer in the south of Ukraine.
1: Uh, Pavel, let me also ask you, you know, Ukrainian counteroffensive, this has been talked about for quite a while now. Uh, Russia obviously has had time to prepare. How prepared is Russia? Well, everyone has been preparing for the summer campaign, uh, how they're prepared to,
0: uh, and how effective we will see in the on the battlefield. The Ukrainians want to break this uh, bloody gridlock, go mobile, and achieve victory during the summer campaign, which begins now and can last till October something. Where it's uh, dry summer weather, you, you can move uh, heavy equipment, trucks and tanks and other heavy stuff over fields and uh, dirt roads. You can go mobile. At uh, last. Uh, Autumn, the Ukrainians managed the spectacular mobile offensive in the uh, Kharkiv region. They're trying to pull something maybe bigger now. They have more equipment. Uh, The Russians have right now more troops. Uh, The Russians are preparing to stop the Ukrainian offensive, give them a bloody nose, heavy casualties, a small success, and then Mm. maybe Ukraine will be ready. To end this war on Russian terms, which basically means this freeze of the present status quo, a frozen conflict.
1: Despina, obviously we can't have this discussion without talking about NATO. From your perspective, what is NATO's view of what is currently happening?
3: I think that uh, I I am not a NATO officer anymore, but uh, certainly, I mean, I can interpret the alliance's uh, positions. I mean, we have we have here some facts on the ground, and uh, these facts are in favor of Ukraine. Ukraine has a moral advantage in this conflict. They are fighting for their country, for their territory. They have uh, the the support of of the Western countries, uh, US and other NATO allies. I think NATO is adamant. Uh, Secretary Stoltenberg has repeated it uh, very often that we will stand. by Ukraine
1: as long as it takes. Patrick, uh, let me ask you a question about um, the fact that the West, uh, NATO as well, you know, they've supplied all these modern weapons to Ukraine. But one thing I'm curious about, how complicated are they to use? Uh, Because we talk about tanks being delivered. We talk about perhaps F-16s at some point uh, being given to Ukraine. Um, Is training being provided
2: Well, yeah, well, well, actually on both of them, to be honest with you, the training for the tank crews has already happened. And, you know, it happens in in Europe and and uh, those those forces have gone back to Ukraine with their tanks. You know, there's 230 Western tanks supplied to Ukraine, which they have inside the country now, over 1500 armoured infantry fighting vehicles. The thing with the tanks, like, in terms of the logistics, it's um, because there are different variants, there's more Leopards, but there's also the Challenger 2s uh, and Abrams uh, in there as well, the US Abrams. It, it varies, you know, they've got different logistical chains and different needs. And that when you don't have standardization, that is just a bit of a pain logistically. But it's not impossible. Uh, and it does, you know, it does like actually all come down to logistics. I wouldn't be surprised if there was, um, you know, independent contractors hired in to help them, who have the expertise who um, and know all the parts and the workings but, of these, because that's another Patrick,
1: way. Patrick, I did want to follow up with you about that specific point. I mean, do you believe that there are specialists or contractors or former military officers from Western countries that are currently on the ground in Ukraine helping either to operate or to repair th- this equipment?
2: I don't know. is a short answer. I don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if they were, in, you know, because there's nothing barring that um essentially uh so but that so that's another way of getting around the problem. The F-16 I- issue, the pilots are being trained in Europe and in the US as well, but that takes a fair bit of time. My understanding is if you took an English-speaking, very um current, I mean like the fighter pilot from the Ukrainian Air Force who has literally been flying his own jets up until a few weeks ago, and then started to um train them on the F-16, it could take anywhere between six weeks and three to four months. That's about the and that would be the absolute fast as you could do it. Um, and of course, other pilots will, who either have less experience or are in training, it will take longer for them to know. So um, it depends on the pilot. And of course you can't just get you know three or four pilots to do this. You need it, them all to be able to do it. So the systems work together. Um, so that will take uh f- that will take longer. But I wouldn't be surprised if we started to see the F-16 come in towards the autumn uh which there's still a bit of time for potentially another offensive And the really interesting thing about this in terms of warfare is the West and most countries would not be fighting really the way Ukraine is. Yes, they can do combined arms in terms of artillery, drones, um, tanks, infantry, but we'd never commit forces without air support uh, and even like air parity. And they don't have that at the moment. So it's a very brave thing they're doing as well.
1: Despina, let me get your perspective. Uh, Do you think that we're any closer to seeing potential formal mediation or formal peace talks when it comes to the Ukraine conflict, or are we farther than we've ever been from that possibility?
3: I think all the major powers are trying to to negotiate a solution. The thing is that uh, a solution uh, will have winners and losers. For the time being, I can interpret the Ukrainian offensive as as a uh, as a very serious effort to come to negotiations with an advantage on the table. Uh, certainly, this, in my view, would be the most complex negotiation after the end of the Cold War. Similar, I mean, to the negotiation that took place in the nineties uh, after the dissolution of, of the Soviet Union, because Ukraine cannot lose. Uh, uh, but, uh, of course, they have to accept some unpleasant situation on the ground, to say the least. Uh, What Russia would accept is a question mark. I don't think Russia will accept a total defeat, and I don't know if a total defeat would be in favor of stability in Europe in general. So I see uh, many behind the scenes Negotiations for the time being, and maybe I mean we can we can foresee uh, formal negotiations by the end of the year. The problem, you know, is that both in Europe and in the United States, by the end of the year, we will enter uh, pre-electoral periods. I mean, for us, it's obvious they will have primaries, and for Europe. Maybe, I mean, our colleagues are not so familiar with. In Mm. Europe, the leadership will change next year because of the European elections. So this is something that maybe impede negotiation Mm. with a, a clear outcome.
1: Uh, Patrick, I want to ask you um, about the fact that the commander of Ukraine's ground forces uh, has said that Ukrainian forces are moving forward near Bakhmut. Um, From your point of view, is there a chance that Ukraine could retake Bakhmut and what would that mean in all of this?
2: Well, firstly, I I totally would agree with what Despina said. I think that's all spot on. Um, uh, In terms of Bakhmut, there does, like, for example, in the last 24 hours, Yevgeny Pagodin, the head of the uh, Wagner PMC, has said that he handed over a village just north of Bakhmut to the Russian army, and then the Russian army withdrew under pressure from the uh, Ukrainians. So we'll have to see exactly what the situation is there, but it's certainly not stable, And judging by... Well, I don't even know if Yevgeny Progovin is stable, judging by his rants on social media, but uh, the front there does not seem to be as stable as the Russians would like. Um, it is possible, and again, that would be a, a political... Because it's been so symbolic and it's been invested in so much human capital in terms of deaths for Russia, um, turned into something much bigger than it actually was it needed to be in terms of military strategy um that would be a blow for putin as well so uh and we've seen fighting to the north of there as well and shelling in solidar etc so I'll just have to see. But it would make perfect sense to, for example, from a military perspective, to try to encircle or, or, or go even further behind with a, with a pincer behind Bakhmut and then start moving behind the flanks either to the north or to the south. That would make perfect military sense. So uh, it just is a question of whether the defences are too strong there or not. Pavel,
1: um, I'm curious from your perspective to know, um, is there any willingness uh, on the part of the Russian government to try to enter any kind of uh, mediation or formal peace talks when it comes to the conflict in Ukraine, or is that a non-starter at this point?
0: Well, the official line of the Kremlin is that Russia is ready to basically negotiate, but right now there's no one to negotiate with. The present Ukrainian leadership is not ready to negotiate anything uh, from the Russian point of view. Because uh, Russia demands that more or less what Russia has taken and uh, reunited with the motherland should be recognized as Russian territory, meaning Crimea, the Donbas, and uh, parts of Zaporozhye and Kherson. Uh, so basically, it's kind of freezing the present status quo. That's what Russia would more or less want, and what Ukraine does not want at all. And apparently in Europe, also not all. Many don't want that either to kind of reward, uh, as they say, Russia. So that means right now it's not much talk. It's going to be fight, fight instead of talk. It will be decided on the battlefield of this summer campaign of how things turn out by autumn and when the autumn rain turn everything into a sea of mud and, and mobile war, warfare is impossible again. I believe, yes, negotiations can begin, but right now uh, the uh, terms on which they could be held are totally not fully understood because uh, first we'll have to see how this campaign uh, goes uh,
1: through. Uh, Despina, um, what must the level of concern be among EU member states right now? At the start of the conflict, did anyone think this would last this long?
3: I think it's very high, the level of concern, because of the prolonged conflict and because of the uncertainty about the end of this conflict. Uh, you know, maybe it's not a direct consequence the, the inflation in Europe, but it's still a big problem. Prices are not get uh, are not going down, uh, energy uh, prices as well. So I think that the public opinion in Europe is going to get tired. Uh, from the prolonged conflict. And this can lead to indifference because, as I said, European elections are planned in May 2024 and and, uh, European elections are not of great interest in Europe anyway, but the leadership of the European institutions will change. So I don't know if they will have the appetite and the dynamism and the political legitimacy to, to go on at, at, to the table of negotiation and provide a solution, because EU has to be part of the solution. They have to offer a carrot to Ukraine. They don't have to isolate Russia, on the other hand, because otherwise they will create a, a black hole in Europe. So it is very complicated, and I'm afraid we don't see any very, very clear positions on behalf of the European Union. Um- Pavel, you heard Despina
1: there talking about uh, public opinion in Europe. I'm curious to know about where public opinion stands in in Russia right now. And and also, what is the situation in Russia right now when it comes to the economic sanctions that have been imposed? Uh,
0: Well, economic sanctions, of course, have a very serious effect. So uh, the Russian economy in terms, say, of GDP is not—and inflation is not that really bad as it could have been. Uh, there's a lot of defense spending, which means that GDP is growing, as it always does in any kind of war situation. Uh, so right now, the public opinion basically supports uh, the war effort, supports the government, supports President Putin— Uh, But what happens if there are serious Russian uh, 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 problems on the battlefield? Uh, That could change dramatically. But if it continues as it is right now, uh, the line that Russia should fight on and uh, go to negotiations uh, from a position of strength to kind of secure the present situation and, and have a uh, kind of ceasefire, frozen situation, that's going to be more or less supported. I believe, yes, by the end of the year, there will be some kind of pause in the fighting. Simply both sides will run out of arms and munitions, largely. There's crisis of, of logistics on both sides. So some kind of pause is coming, but it will come after a very vicious summer
1: campaign. The Spina- If the counteroffensive is not as successful for Ukraine as they would like, how much more pressure will be applied by the EU, by the US, by NATO, for President Zelensky uh, and his colleagues to enter into negotiations with President Putin?
3: First of all, you know, the success of an operation... uh, has its own narrative. I mean, Ukrainians can say that the offensive uh, would be successful and Russians would contradict this assumption. Uh, certainly, uh, we are not talking here about big victories or big defeats. Uh, you see how it's going on the ground, step by step. Uh, I I have the impression that the uh, U.S. and Europe are pushing, to which extent, I don't know, but they would like to see a negotiating solution. And so I, I believe that they have made it clear to the Ukrainian leadership uh, their views. Uh, on the other hand, uh, they, the leadership is that of a sovereign country, so to which extent, I mean, the pressure can be uh, effective, it's a question. But uh, let's see, I mean, how it goes for the time being. If it is successful enough, then maybe, indeed, uh, we can have uh, some change of attitude.
1: Uh, Pavel, um, when it comes to weapon stockpiles, where do things stand currently for Russia?
0: Uh, well, Russia has still a lot of weapons uh, that can be used. Uh, But there are some problems, of course, with um, procurement. They're using uh, Soviet stockpiles, which are usable. Uh, But uh, the Ukrainians are getting increasingly very sophisticated weapons. They're getting, in some respect, an upper hand, though they still don't have a Air Force that can challenge, anyway, the Russians in the air, uh, but they can at least deny the Russian Air Force uh, uh, flight uh, capabilities deep into Ukrainian controlled territory. So that's Mm. also very important. So both sides have weapons right now ready Mm. for this campaign and can carry it on, but the problems come up later on. When there's going to be there's a crisis of armaments of of munitions in the West, it's mm. a lot. Of talk about that. There's also some problems with that in Russia. Mm. I believe uh, the per- present intensity of fighting cannot be sustained indefinitely. Mm. Uh, I think there's going to be a pause somewhere closer to the end of the year, inevitably, uh,
1: which will maybe some kind of uh, tentative ceasefire action. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Pablo Felgenhauer and Despina Afentuli, and Patrick Bury, who joined us earlier. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Sarah Chayrat, Fungi Nguyen, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Philip Morrison. The program was edited by Vishnu Sheila, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Tuesday for our next edition.